Hey, I'm sports journalist Sam Squires. Welcome to On Her Game. I first met Bronte Campbell when I was living up in Brisbane. She was a massive household name in Australian sport, yet she was so kind, down to earth and genuine. She's a three-time Olympian, two-times gold medalist, three-times world champion and five-time Commonwealth Games gold medalist. Yet still the same friendly girl next door Bronte. Bronte is one half of the renowned Campbell sisters with older sister Kate, who is her ally, rival, nemesis, yet greatest support. The two may go hand in hand when you talk about Australian swimming. They often do interviews together. Yet I've always wanted to chat to them on on her game separately as they have such completely different stories, journeys and experiences. Bronte admits it was a process to launch out of Kate's shadow and has had major challenges throughout her journey. A recurring shoulder injury which gave her debilitating chronic pain throughout much of her career, just part of it. There's lots to Bronte, more than meets the goggling closed eye. She's super smart, a poet, and has an incredible perspective on her sport and life in the public eye. But this Aussie star grew up a world away from Australia in the poverty-stricken African nation of Malawi. Little Bronte was um, very intense. Wow. Yeah, I was a very intense kid. So we moved to um, Australia from... Malawi when I was um, seven years old and I I mean I was intense when it came to swimming like I decided at that age (laughs) that I wanted to be an Olympic swimmer and we lived just down the road from the pool and I'd walk myself to the pool an hour early so I could watch the big kids train like picture me walking down the street and because we'd just come from Africa and in Africa you wear every single color all at once if Mm. you can Um, we also had just moved with five kids and very little money. So we're all wearing these like different colored op shop clothing. And then um, I'd have my cap and goggles on like ready to go. and just walk down the street an hour and then sit next to the pool watching everyone train because I was convinced it was going to make me better swimmer. And then like when I got in, I was like counting my laps, counting everyone else's laps, telling them if they'd done something wrong. Like I was like an absolute, I was a pest, like an absolute pest. Um, So, yeah, I was probably not the most popular person in swim training. (laughs) Like, I just had this obsession in in that arena. And then outside of it, I was um, was just a little bit of of an odd child that liked um, looking for bugs and spiders and, like, wanting to run around and play and just, like, always be on the move, um, which was... Possibly a bit interesting being being a girl. The first time I went to school, um, when I was I was in grade three, I joined school mm-hmm. and I had my hair real short, and so I got to run around and play soccer for the first um, the first day I was there. And uh, then the boys figured out that I was a girl and I wasn't a boy. I thought I was a boy because oh. I had short hair. And then I got then I got kicked out of the soccer team. <laughs> so I don't, that doesn't really answer your question. I'm just. I was intense. just, I was intense. I just wanted yeah. to be like on the move, running around, doing something absolutely all the time. Why Malawi? Why did, why were you born in Malawi? How did, how is it that your family was My there? My parents are from South Africa and um, they just traveled a lot around after they got married and um, dad took a job in Malawi, which is, it's a few countries north of South Africa. It's, um, it's quite a developing country. There's, there's not a lot of infrastructure there. Um, but yeah, he just took the job for a bit of an adventure. I thought it was going to be a one-year thing and 
they stayed 10 years and had four and a half kids there. Half being when we moved to Australia, my um, mum my was pregnant with uh, a mm-hmm. young, my youngest sister. Yeah. Um, is there something about growing up in Malawi, which is one of the poorest countries in the world, that, you know, someone who grew up in Australia and had the typical Aussie childhood just couldn't understand? Can you give us a, a bit of a snapshot of life in Malawi and growing up there? You know, when you're a kid, you don't question anything. You think it's all, um, whatever you're presented with mm. is normal. Mm. Um, it wasn't until I moved to Australia that I realised that it wasn't normal to have like walls around your houses and to have night watchmen on the door and to mm. get broken into. And it wasn't normal that there was beggars on the street everywhere. And it wasn't normal that um, the roads weren't paved. Um, and it wasn't normal that every time you left, like all the all the street kids would come and follow you because... Um, they're hungry. They they saw that you had something that they could want, and it was um, it wasn't confronting when you were there. It's when you come away from it. I think it's like I got culture shock from moving to Australia mm. and just looking around, and um, it was it was quite a confronting thing. Even when I was I was little, I probably struggled with adjusting when I first came to Australia. It's a very a very different place, but then it offers such a perspective. Um, I never really had a lot of time for complaining about things when I was growing up because I could see how how good we have it here in Australia. And so I get a lot of, of gratitude from that. And then the fact that Australia sort of embraced me and I've gone on to be able to represent that country. Like these opportunities wouldn't exist for me in, um, in Malawi. And that's just a roll of the dice, like fortunate thing for me that my parents decided to move or that they had the means to move. Um, or the inclination to move and bring me to a place where there's opportunity. So it definitely provides perspective. But Malawi Blantyre, where I grew up, there was one traffic light in the um, in the city, which didn't work most of the time because <laughs> the power would go out a lot. We always had to have generators to make everything work. It's um, it's very far removed from when I moved to Brisbane and there were lots of traffic lights and they all worked and every single street was paved. And when there was a pothole, it got fixed and all these little things. Um, When we first moved, the garbage truck would come around with this little arm that comes out and picks up the bin. And we all kids used to line up um, in front of the house and watch that because it was the most mesmerizing thing we'd ever seen. Like every single Monday morning, 7 a.m., we'd be there like waiting to see, watch the garbage truck. How tragic is that? <laughs> we need some more entertainment. I've seen a photo of you and Kate walking and there's like a wild boar kind of in front of you as well. It's in your book. Um, was it a bit like that, like different animals and everything that we can't have an idea about here in Australia? I mean, Australia's got amazing um, wildlife that you can go and see in its natural mm. habitat, which is sort of not as much the case in Malawi. You could go to like game parks and um, see a lot of animals there. But it's, um, it's there were like some wild places like the lake where we used to go in Malawi. It's this beautiful lake. We used to swim there. It's... Um, it's got like hippos and crocodiles oh, in it. So, so you'd be you you'd be that. swimming and then you'd hear like this big like like the, when hippos come up to breathe, they like exhale like this big like Phew. and you'd hear that and you'd be like, okay, all the kids like out the water very quickly. Oh my gosh. Because <laughs> hippos are really dangerous. Yeah, aren't they? Very aggressive. They yeah. wouldn't come close to shore often. Like they had their territory where they'd normally stay, but 
every now and again they'd come out and they sort of walk on the bottom so you can't see them. Yeah. And they'd like come up and breathe and be like, all right, get time, out. time to get out. Wow. <laughs> and crocodiles as well. Yeah, they're, they're, it's, a, it's a freshwater lake, so they're freshwater crocodiles, but some of them were quite big. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> it's, no wonder they're in, so comfortable in the water. Like <laughs> Australian pools have got nothing on those lakes with hippos um, and crocs. We do know the Campbell sisters, um, but there's a whole Campbell clan, isn't there? Can you just give us an idea about the rest of the Campbell clan? Yeah, there's there's a lot of us. I think um, people <laughs> would realise that there's myself and Kate, obviously, but then... So um, humble, everyone does. Yeah, every, Everyone would realise that. <laughs> no, I just mean um, not, not many people realise there's three others. Um, there's Jessica and Hamish and Abigail, so my two younger sisters and my younger brother. Mm-hmm. Um, my younger brother Hamish was actually born on my birthday, so we share Yay. share a birthday four years apart. And um, he's there was a lot of complications with with his birth, which mm-hmm. was part of what um, prompted us to move to Australia. And we did, and he was a stillborn and had to be resuscitated and flown out to South Africa for extra care. And he's got um, quite severe cerebral palsy as a result of of that. So he requires um, full time care, which. My mum and dad's um, look after him. Is there something about having a sibling who has a disability, and I'm saying this in a positive way, that maybe neurotypical kids can't quite understand? And I say that in a positive way. Is there's like a positive thing about, you know, having Hamish in, in your lives that it's, neurotypical kids and families can't quite grasp? It's definitely a positive thing. I mean, if we more broadly before talk about specifically, like, the more diversity within the human race you're exposed to, the better it is for your perspective. And as I was saying before, you just whatever you're presented with is what's normal. So for us growing up, it was just like, well, this is normal. It's normal that we have to carry Hamish out the house every time we go. It's normal that he can't see or and he's nonverbal, so he can't talk, so he's got his own little sounds and stuff that he <laughs> makes. And it's normal that we just converse with him in that and mm. figure out what he wants from that. And yeah. Um, it's not seen as, it was never seen when I was a kid as a, a burden or something that like had to be hidden. It was just as much celebrated. So I think one day I came back from a swimming carnival and I'd, um, I'd won like my first state gold medal and it was, I was very, very <laughs> excited. But Hamish had like learned to hold a cup that day, which he'd been doing <laughs> all year, was trying to like get him to hold things because he liked throwing them instead. Yep. And so that night we were just like celebrating that Hamish was holding a cup, yeah, uh, yeah, <laughs> which yeah. was more of an achievement than my state medal, yeah. Um, which just puts everything into perspective, yeah. And it's it's a beautiful thing. It's yeah. I, I know what you're saying. It's not mm. it's it's not ever a, a negative thing. No, um, yeah. It's it obviously has challenges, mm. but um, it's it's a positive impact mm. on on my life, on the rest of my family's life, and hopefully on. On other people as well, because he's um he's a special person, and you can see he he impacts other people mm-hmm. that he's around. Yeah, and I I totally preach and echo everything, all your sentiments there, and that diversity that I think um yeah we need, and to open our eyes as well to diversity as well. Um, uh, were you close? Always closest with Kate growing up. So you two are the eldest. Were you always closest or was there a sibling growing up that you grew closer to or was it always you and Kate? Uh, Kate and I were always really close. Um, we're two years apart. I mean, 
we were also two girls growing up, so I'm sure we fought a bit as well. <laughs> but um, no, we we're always pretty close to each other. And um, something about Kate being the eldest, she sort of looks after everybody. So that was um, that was sort of her role, and then yeah, uh, what was your role then? <laughs> bit of an annoying disruptor. <laughs> you know, you got an older sibling, and like they've got all their friends, so you want to hang out with them. Yeah. Um, and um, older siblings don't always want that, so they'd set things for me like, okay, if you can if you can beat Kate in a running race around the house, then you can hang out with us. Oh, it's which so is cruel. like so <laughs> funny. It's so like kids do that. It's so I know. But do you know what? Like, I ended up just being like, okay, great. Like that, that was that was what they set for me. And so <laughs> then I'd practice running around the house. And then two days later, I'd come back and be like, okay, like I'm ready. I think I could. And then maybe I'd beat, I think I did beat Kate in that running race. And then. Did you get to hang out? I don't actually remember. Yeah, pro- the rules probably Pro- changed. Probably not. No, yeah, <laughs> they works. probably just yeah. changed the rules. But um, as we grew older and became as you get older, you sort of become more the same age. Like the mm. age difference doesn't feel like that yeah, much. isn't that much. Yeah. It's really not. Um, when you're six and four, it's a lot. But yeah. as we were like getting to sort of 12 and 10, we yeah. started spending a lot more time together. And um, that was when we were both on our swimming dreams then as well. So we had this, this shared goal that we wanted to do together. Fun fact I love about Bronte Campbell, you started in synchronised swimming. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Take me back. How did that happen? <laughs> My mom was a synchronized swimmer. Um, a good one. Yeah, she was. She was very good. She made the Springbok team in South Africa, and when we moved to Malawi, she started teaching the high school kids there. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we used to just go along with her, and we could either play on the side of the pool or we could join in with the practice. Mm-hmm. Um, there wasn't an option to get in and play in the water, and. Having always loved the water, it was, mm. we were always going to get in. So we just started, I was probably five, started training with the, with the high school kids. <laughs> it was hilarious. Um, and yeah, we just, I did my first synchronized swimming competition when I was six. Um, I wish I still had a video of it because it would be so, <laughs> so cute. But um, I got three out of ten for it. Whoa. All the judges gave me three out of ten and oh. one of the judges was my mom. Oh, so ouch. <laughs> I'm sure it's not very good. And um, I came fourth out of four people. <laughs> so that was never going to be my career, but it, it was it was fun. I think that's... um. That's where I just learned like love of the water and just being in it and the way you can like move so freely in it in a way that you can't mm. on land. Um, definitely trace that back to those very early years, just trying to learn how to do a ballet leg. So swimming started for you really when you moved to Australia. You've had the same coach right from the start. That's pretty rare, right? Yeah, it's incredibly rare. I think it's some sort of record. He's been my coach for 21 years. So when you were, what, seven, when you moved to Australia, yeah, he was your coach at the time from seven. Yeah. It's it's very unusual to have, normally you'd have coach progression, you'd have like you learn to swim and then as you moved on, you go to an age group coach and then um, move on from your age group program. But we just, we um, walked down the street to the, the pool that was at the end of our street and <laughs> There was a world-class coach in the making there. His mm. father was a coach and an Olympic athlete. His great uncle was an um, Olympic coach as well. So he's sort of like the third 
generation and that, but he was just starting out. Um, I think he was 24 when I met him. Wow. So okay. that's really young. Yeah, he was yeah. young. Um, and then just took me all the way through to three Olympics, Kate to four Olympics. And yeah. he's had other swimmers as well, but um, we've been with him since the start, which was great for him to try out his coaching philosophy on us as young kids and figure out Fair what to say works. it worked. And <laughs> it did work. But he was, he was different. He was... Took these seven-year-olds to the was, Olympics yeah. and be our greatest swimmers ever. Well, he, um, like I said, was very intense when I was young. And uh, I just wanted to be at the pool the whole time. And when I was seven, I was like, I want to be doing six sessions a week. Can I come in twice a day? And um, he was the one that took me aside and was like, "You, there's no Olympic champions at seven. Mm. Um, I don't want to see you here more than five times a week. If you have to be here five times a week, wow. that's okay. But um, I don't, I'm not, you're not coming in on Saturdays and we're going to take a step back and get you to where you want to go. That's great. But um, you're not going to get there at seven. Wow. <laughs> the earliest Olympics you can hope to make will be 2012. You'll be 17 yeah. then. So if you want to aim for that, aim for that. But um, we're what not What made you say that? Did you have any role models? Did you see someone that you're like, I want to be like them at seven? What made you go, I want to be an Olympic swimmer at seven? I watched the 2000 Olympics before we it. moved. Yeah. yeah. So I was in Africa then watching the 2000 Olympics. And I always liked swimming. I always liked being in the water. I remember watching that and being like, all the Australian swimmers were amazing. Grant Hack had lapped someone in the 1500. I was like, that's exactly what I want to do. Yeah. I want to lap someone in a race and do 1500s, well, which yeah, once I started happen. swimming, I realized I don't want to do 1500s. <laughs> 50, 100 will do. <laughs> yeah, the shorter the better. <laughs> um, you talked through that story about how intense you were. Kate wasn't so intense, was she? No. Until she saw your medals. And yeah. That kind of <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Kate wasn't, she was the opposite of intense. She was, she was just happy to be there, which, by the way, is also okay. a fine way to yeah. enjoy swimming. But um, Kate would sort of walk on the bottom of the pool, like turn around at the flags so rather than swimming into the wall and back out, mm-hmm. just do a little turtle turn at the flags, <laughs> let people lap her so she could do like less. Um, <laughs> and then we went to our first comp and I, I think I won like four gold and got my little age championship trophy. Um, for all for like 25 meters butterfly and breaststroke and whatever. And yeah, I wore those like all around the house. Kate had got a little bronze medal, which she was stoked with until I started wearing all my medals around the house. And um, she sort of snapped and stole them and hid them away. And oh, classic. Um, I mean, honestly, I could have been a little bit more gracious. But <laughs> <laughs> it's that little sister thing of like you're always 100%. competing and then when you get your win, you're like really excited about it. <laughs> yeah, mom sat her down and was like, Kate, I've seen you in training and you're not, you're not very committed to it and you don't really try very hard and that's fine. But mm-hmm. like if you don't try very hard, the bronze medal is what you're going to get. Bronte tries very hard mm-hmm. and this is what she gets. So like I don't mind, but you're going to have to choose. You can't get the medals by stealing them. And that's when um, that's when she started trying really hard and that sort of spawns my um, my greatest rival. She's yeah. Been, um, they're pushing me all the way pretty much since then. Mm. You say that's when your nemesis and your greatest rival yeah. <laughs> was born. But, you know, she's your sibling and your greatest support on the same same token. Um, I want to get into that dynamic um, in a little bit, but was it 
Was it always like that? Because you two are so supportive of each other. You celebrate each other's wins. You're there for each other in, you know, in the fails as well. But um, was it always like that? Because growing up, she's still, you know, your big sister that you want to be. Did it ever get, when you were younger, nasty or or get get bad and really intense between you two? No, it never did as we were growing up. I think the um, the easiest way that it didn't was because in different age groups for all mm. that time. So we're two years apart. So we weren't competing against each other in the same mm. races sure. for any of that time. Um, so we were able just to support each other. And I could yeah. be so excited when she won the girls' 16-year-old's age championship. Like that would be Australian age championship. That was incredible. And I could just fully celebrate that. Um, it probably, it, it gets harder when you are racing against each other for the same um, spots on the team. And we've been incredibly lucky that for, for 10 years we both came first or second in the 50 freestyle and, and held those two spots because it's incredibly competitive. If someone else won a race, Kate came second and I came third, she's sort of directly stopped me from, from making the team. Um, the first two spots in, in the final of the 50 make the team and everyone else doesn't. So it's, um, it's a pretty cutthroat arena just stepping onto the Dolphins team it's it's very difficult to make um but that means when you step onto it you're incredibly proud of being there and we always had the dream from when we were little to do this together to go to the Olympics together so then once we're on the Olympic team together or on the Dolphins team if we're going to world champs or come games whatever you're there sort of competing against the rest of the world like when you stand up behind the blocks it's like it's me and it's Kate and there's six other people in that race and it is so liberating having someone else in that race that you genuinely want to do well mm. as well as yourself yeah. um, and to touch the wall and turn around and see how they've gone and how you've gone. It's, um, it's, it's something we can do side by side. I know it looks like we're competing against each other a lot mm. and um, lots of the time Kate would touch the wall first and I would touch the wall second. Like that ha- that's happened for most of my career objectively. Mm-hmm. She's, a, she's a better swimmer than me. She's achieved a lot more than I have. Um, but it's not, it's not about me versus Kate. It's mm. about like what the two of us can, can do together and having her push me in training, having her show me um, how to be a professional swimmer when I didn't know. She'd already been on teams before mm. I even got there that made me into the swimmer that could come seconds in that race um, without her to guide me through all that. I may not even be in that race anymore. Um, it really is sort of the sum of the two of us together is like one plus one equals three. Mm. Um, was it always because the media is always, I've been so many of these media conferences with with you and Kate and they've they're always wanting something, aren't they? They're always wanting some kind of um, competitive grab from both of you and that's like journo jargon grab is like your quote um they want something about you two being rivals or I want to beat her or or something and you guys have never done that because it's it's not been what it's about but does it always get frustrating that they're always seeking for that for that grab and that sassy kind of grab of I can beat her I want to beat her or something a little bit juicy that way and you guys are like no I'm actually like her win is my win and I celebrate it as well um no, it's not frustrating. I just wish I'd like 
patented the word sibling rivalry and then like every time I got asked it I could get a dollar or something <laughs> that might finance my, the rest of my life no yeah. it's um I get it as well it's a, it's a legitimate number of times it's quoted in an article yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. I get that. every time I'll just like break it in yeah. no it's um it's a legitimate question it's like of course you wonder about it um but I think it's um it's good that we've we've managed to to put it aside and be mm. sisters first and um swimmers second but it's it's not always easy mm. um I think we always uh present a united front because we are united but that doesn't mean that it's been easy to be united the whole mm. time Well I wanted to do this interview separately because I feel like I mean your stories are so woven yet they are different journeys and different stories and different experiences and you two are very very similar in many ways, but you're such such different people as well. So, um, so I was really keen to do these these separately. Um, when you did make the Olympic team, I've looked back on lots of vision. We did a story just recently with Fox with you and Kate, and I had to go back through all the vision of. <laughs> and there is so much on our server of Bronte and, and Kate Campbell, um, and you mentioned this in our interview then about being on the Olympic team for the first time. Kate made her Olympic debut in Beijing in 2008. You made yours 2012 at the London Olympics. And you mentioned you were like stepping into Kate's territory a little bit. You were in her shadow. And I, I saw this this um, image of you two when they were announcing the uniforms or you were doing something with the uniforms and you, or the team's just been announced or something. And you're both sitting in the stands and Kate's very like puffed chest and shoulders back and very much like, okay, this is where I am. This is my second Olympics. And it, your body language was so different then from what I knew. You were like, you know, next to your sister and kind of um, huddled over and you just look wide-eyed. Did it feel like that? Time? Well, how did it feel to be going into that Olympic team that Kate had already cemented her place in? Felt a little bit like going into her her territory a little bit? It's very good observation, but it's um it wasn't it wasn't I was going into Kate's territory. It was that I was going into the, the Dolphins team. So, I mean, as I said, I was a pretty intense kid, but I was an incredibly awkward teenager, as like <laughs> so many are. Right, I was seventeen, and suddenly I was I was sitting in um this the, that um, image would have been when the team got announced, mm-hmm. and. I literally had made the team 30 minutes earlier. So I made the team in the last possible oh, wow. second in the 50 metres freestyle and the team got announced at the end of the 1500, mm. which takes 15 minutes. So 30 minutes after mm. I'd finished my race and made this team, the first team I'd ever made, I was sitting in the stands with every single swimming hero who had been around me for the last few years. I was um, the second youngest person on that team Ilan Kukla was on that team, but she'd been on teams before. So that was me sitting in a room full of people who um, were larger than life for me. But the fact that I could have Kate and sit next to her was what sort of pulled me through that. And she got me through that whole Olympics campaign. Um, You think about your first day of school. Like imagine your first day of school, but every single person is your hero. (laughs) That, That was me stepping onto the team. It was... Um, it can't be underestimated how stressful that is for a young athlete. And that's part of what I've tried to do in the leadership team. Um, what we've tried to do is ease that transition mm. as much as possible 
so that you can very soon after stepping on the on the team sit there with your chest up and your head up and be like mm. I belong here I've yeah. earned my spot here and everybody here is treating me like I belong um and but that wasn't ever an issue for me because Kate always treated me mm. like I belonged and she was like my way in mm. not everyone has that mm. so um that's what I mean when she she helped me become the athlete that I that I am because she fast-tracked a lot of those processes for me. Was it hard establishing yourself as Bronte Campbell, not one half of the Campbell sisters? Um, it has been. It wasn't, it wasn't difficult at the beginning because I didn't really want it. Like I was so proud of my big sister that <laughs> I didn't care that everyone just saw me as a little sister. Um, when you're really proud of someone, you don't care that you're seen as an extension of that. It was probably like later on that it became difficult to establish that we're actually different people. Mm. Um, but anyone that's close to you knows that. It's mm. just trying to figure out which people's opinions really matter, <laughs> which can be quite tricky. Mm. What was it like, your first Olympics in London, that nervous, awkward teenager? Yeah, it was... Um, it's a long time ago now, but it's... Wow, it's 10 years ago. Yeah, mm. yeah. It doesn't feel like that. No, it doesn't. Mm. But I also feel like a completely different person from that. It was um, it was a very stressful Olympics. Um, uh, Kate got... Um, she, she won the gold medal on the first night, and that was amazing with the, with the relay team. And then she got pancreatitis, mm. and I woke up to her like lying on the floor like groaning and not being able to like get up because of the pain from that and that was like a day before mm. my race when she was supposed to be doing a 100 freestyle so it was um it was very interesting it's one of the things you have a lot of build up to it and then it's it's over very quickly and all olympics are like that um but I didn't really appreciate it for what it was I did my my 53 I came ninth in the 50 freestyle so I just missed the the final that was in the semi-final and then it was it was just over. But um, I was sort of a bit ignorant of everything. Like I didn't know any international swimmers. I could just like walk into the room and not really care that like the world champion was there and the old Olympic champion was there. I just like walk out, no idea who anyone was. So I just sort of sailed That's through it. That's kind of it. good though, right? It, it is good. Yeah. Sometimes it's very good. You see like really young swimmers and young athletes perform really well their first time around because – I don't really care about the gravity of the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, Agree. Yeah. But it was very difficult because I'd had this, this sort of great experience with the um, the most stressful thing being how sick my sister was. Mm. And then coming on the other side of that and the team was like very heavily criticized mm. and uh, performances were very heavily criticized and I'd never had that before. Um, the idea of doing your best and that being enough um, doesn't apply to the Olympics when the media and the public are involved. And um, it was it was difficult coming home from that. Second was a loss. Silver was a loss. Silver was definitely seen as a loss, yeah. especially at those Olympics. Yeah. And I came, I came ninth. So it was difficult coming home from that and then everyone having a ready an opinion and a commentary around that. Um, so rather than people asking me, like, how the Olympics were, they'd ask specifically, like, Oh, how bad is it when this happens? Mm. Um, which and the Steel Knock scandal, obviously. And the Steel Knock stuff, which I didn't even know about when I was over there because no. that was um, 
And then that came out afterwards and everyone wants to know about that. And yeah. you, don't, you don't even know about it. Yeah. So it really took away, it really showed me that sport isn't just sport when it comes to the Olympics. Like yeah. there's, there's a lot more going on and um, told me to be a bit wary of that as we were going into my next Olympics. Mm. Mm. I was going to ask you about the Still Knock scandal because it went from like the Dolphins being, you know, our favourite sporting team and then under so much scrutiny, the Still Knocks six, whatever it was. And you look back on hindsight and I'm like, oh my gosh, was it like it was such a big deal at the time, but, you know, on the scale of things, was it as bad? But, you know, it, it did bring, there was like a report into it, an investigation, and it did bring um, the Dolphins as a team into disrepute. Yeah. And that brand was really tarnished from that. You were a part of that. You were like, oh my God, these are my heroes. And then suddenly the team that you looked up to was getting so scrutinised. And as you said, people asking you about it. What was it like being in the middle of that at the time? It's difficult being in the middle of something that and 17. you have nothing to do with, mm. really. Um, and swimming in general gets, and Olympic sports in general get held to a much higher standard than other sports do in terms of their level of scrutiny and the behaviours that are expect- expected. But um, for me, that doesn't mean that, oh, we should just stop scrutinising swimming or Olympic sports. It's like we should probably bring the level up of what we think about other sports people and how they behave. Bring it up to that level because um, what the boys did was not at all right. Um, the fact that there was a full investigation afterwards and then things changed is a good thing. But I don't see that really happening in many other sports. Like I can't imagine that six boys taking still knocks, which is a legal drug, um, and it's not uh, the the Olympic team had said we don't want anybody to be taking still knocks at the Olympics. So there was this rhetoric of it being a banned substance, but it's it wasn't not a banned substance. It's, though, it's was not it? banned under the WADA code, and it's not an illegal drug. It's just a prescription sleeping pill. Um, but they obviously misused that, and. Um, you look at other sports, like I don't want to throw other sports under the bus, but like the level of misbehavior that goes on in other sports and they don't get as much scrutiny from that. So the Dolphins was held up to a really high standard. Very high standard, mm. which is, it's, um, like I said, it's, it's every sport should be held up to that standard. It became, I became very aware from that age that um, whatever you do has like a, very big ripple effect consequence. And there's always, there's, I mean, especially a few years ago, there was the debate of do sports people have to be role models? It's like, well, you don't, you don't get a choice. Mm, like no. this is, you are a role model whether you want to be or not. That's the price you pay for being able to be a sports person. They're like, oh, I'm just following my dream and I'm just playing footy or I'm just um, like really good at running or I'm just really good at swimming. It's like, you are, but there has to be that extra piece of once you step into that, um, high performance arena. It is a privilege to be a role model too, isn't it? Saying it's, it's a like privilege. a burden, but exactly. it is a privilege as well. It is a privilege. Um, and you can make it a privilege. you just got to figure out the right way to do that. And um, yeah, the everything that happened in 2012 for me highlighted that there's a very high standard set here and I need to not only live up to that, but exceed that if you want to do do well and do, do good things from mm. the sport. Mm. Do you feel though, I feel like, James Magnuson and being in that one one hundredth of a second was where he got silver. Yeah. And yet that just changed the whole course of 
of his career and and everything and and are we are we better at the moment? I noticed the last Olympics when someone got a silver that was that was absolutely um, celebrated, whereas it it wasn't in the past. Do I you think, think we're we, better. Yeah. I think we're getting a little bit better at understanding that one one hundredth of a second is um is not a, a margin that you can completely vilify someone over. I think we are getting getting better at it. Um, as well, the the culture of our team is now that we celebrate that. Um, when an athlete wins a silver medal and walks up to uh, a microphone, knowing that on the other side of the microphone is their team who's going to be there for them and is going to celebrate them and be so excited for them, they can walk up with a smile on their face. I mean, James, when he came, um, he came second in 2012, he was absolutely defeated by that. You see him walk up to the interviewer and he's like, he Ed knows. Sebron cried with silver too. Yeah. Em- Emily, um, she was so disappointed in herself, but it's, um, it also comes back to if she, if she knew she had like the full team support as well as the public support, you can walk up being, being happy with how you've performed. Um, and we've sort of built that back into the team. It's taken a very long time. It takes a long time to, to change that it's either gold or nothing. And that's, um, that's actually the rhetoric from the, the golden age of swimming was like, um, you've got to win, you've got to win, we've got to count our gold medals. We're, we've taken it more away from that. And um, we always wanted to value the swimmer as a person first. So you're valued for who you are and then you're celebrated for how you perform. Mm. So you've got a place on the team regardless of how you perform. You're not performing out of fear. This is the only way you can prove yourself to your team and then extend it to your country. So... We're in a we're in a much better place in that. I think society in general has come a bit of a long way in that mm, as well. That's true. Yeah. At the time, was Hamish was there something was Hamish unwell during the twenty twelve London Olympics as well? Was that another thing that was playing on yours and Kate's mind? Hamish, um, he got sick on the night of the closing ceremony, so um, we were about to. We actually went out to the closing ceremony. We got back. And we got a call and they're like, oh, Hamish is in um, hospital. His um, bowel is almost ruptured and he was in like life-saving surgery. So we made Kate and I just sat there and like cried Aww. and cried. Um, oh, Brody, I'm sorry. I can normally talk about it without <laughs> a big deal. Um, but it is a big deal. No, it was a it big was. deal. But like sometimes things hit you and sometimes mm. you can talk about them and it's fine. Um, but we just flew home and like suddenly mum was in hospital with Hamish for like three or four months. So Kate and I went from the Olympics to trying to run the rest of the family. Like dad had to go back to work because they'd been over and they'd been watching us in um, in London. Luckily they got home before anything bad happens, but dad had taken all his leave. He had to go back to work. So Kate and I were then on the school runs and like making the lunches and mm. it was a very big come down from mm, yeah. <laughs> from the Olympics um, straight into that. But that's sort of when, so Hamish had been pretty healthy up till then and he sort of really had many health struggles since then. So he was really sick in, in Rio as well and so he couldn't come over, he can't really travel anymore and um, now he's he's amazingly not eaten any food for about four or five years. Do you know you can do that? You no. can give someone TPN, you can feed them intravenously because his stomach and his bowel doesn't work properly. Yeah. 
Um, but he's in palliative care now, which he actually started in 2016. So um, it's been a long health journey for him since then. But that was that was like another thing from 2012 where you like realize what's important. Like you just had to swim meet and like Kay was disappointed because she got sick halfway through and couldn't finish it. And that was all very upsetting. And then you have like an actual life and death event happen. You're like, oh, how important is this actually? Yeah, Perspective yeah. is is very important in, in sports. You do get like very caught up in the bubble. Yeah. Seems like you girls have always had incredible perspective on things and situations and sometimes. sometimes. <laughs> I have perspective now, I think. In hindsight? In in hindsight, you have mm. perspective and there's been moments where you have it, but I don't want to sound like I've always just had this great outlook. Mm. Like there have been times probably around like 2015 where you lose it, but you lose it slowly. Like you don't realize you're so set on your sport and what you want to achieve and what you're doing that things start falling away. So suddenly you have less time for friends. You have less time for hobbies. You're suddenly not doing the things out of the pool that you love. And they fall away very slowly. You don't realize it's sort of like a little spiral effect. And suddenly you sort of get to the bottom and you're like, how on earth did I end up here where um, my sport is the only thing that's giving me joy in my life? And you have to sort of climb your way back out of it. Did success do that for you? Because 2015 was a massive year. You, The World Championships were huge for you. You won the 100-metre um freestyle and the 50 meter freestyle something like the only the fourth woman in history to do that double at the world championships so you're a world double world champion things are going really really well did success push you into the wrong perspective there for what you were saying that swimming was the only thing that mattered olympics the next year as well yeah definitely so after 2015 which as you said is um it was the most successful year individually um and yeah, I finished that. I had two weeks off or 10 days off. And then I got back in the pool and I started training again straight away. And I didn't take like any time to um, to sort of stop and appreciate what I'd done at all because I wanted to go to Rio next year. And you can, um, you've just been world champion. Every single person who's at the world championships is going to be at the Olympics next year. Let's, um, let's get straight back into it. And um the more dedicated you are, the better. So, like, just keep on, keep on going. Let's um, s- stop. What gave stop you that drinking. message? Mm, myself. Yeah, yeah. I, I was just like, great. Was it a culture just... from the team? No, my, my coach, because you have like the team, and then you've got your individual coaching environment as well. And, um, my coach was like, you can have time off. Like, don't worry about it. But um, I just wanted it. You all want it. You're so it's laser focused. seven-year-old intense Bronte coming yeah, out, right? exactly. Mm. And now's your, now's your chance. The Olympics is next year. And that's when I got, I got injured at the end of 2015 and that was my hip. And then my neck and my shoulder got injured at the start of 2016. And that's when you realize like how far you've spiraled into like just fully being into swimming. Because then when things aren't going right, you're like quite miserable because you don't have any outside sources of happiness. So when things are going well, it's like, it's great. Everything's going well. Everything in my life is good, but it's actually just the one thing in your life that's good. And then when you start losing control of that, it becomes quite difficult. So your head's saying one thing, but your body's breaking down. Yeah, it was was very, 2016 was very difficult training for the Olympics, knowing that I couldn't do the things that I used to do. I was doing like 60% of my my normal training and... Mm. um, 
going to an Olympic Games. I mean, normally I sort of pride myself on being able to work incredibly hard and incredibly well. And then I can stand up behind the blocks and be like, well, I've done the work. I'll just swim there and back. It's fine. Um, standing up behind the blocks in 2016 being like, I actually know I haven't done the work. Um, and I have to find a way to back myself anyway, which um, in the moment I felt like I did a very good job of it. And I was really proud of the times that I swam mm -hmm. in, in Rio. Mm. I touched the wall in fourth place by 0 0.05 of a second, yeah. which is a very, very small margin. Um, when you're describing your shoulder being held together by sticky tape, yeah. is that how you described it? Yeah, pretty much was. It was. At that point, we didn't even really know what was wrong with it. Um, but on the other side of it, I can look at how I approached the injury as being not at all constructive. So... On the day of the Olympics, I'm really proud of my performance, but I wish that in the lead up to it, I had um, I'd done things differently and taken a bit more responsibility for how I managed my injury rather than just blindly following a path. And I just really wanted things to work. So I just ignore, it. ignore the pain, push through the pain. Um, when things are hurting, not bother doing anything about it. And it ends up making it so much worse. Um, where did that come from? Because, you know, you're in a high-performance environment where you have access to physios and specialists and everything like that. But was it just your mindset that, like, I need to, I need to push through pain? That's the idea. It's going to be painful. I need to push push through it. Is that – and did you didn't tell anyone that this is what was kind of happening in a way? Like, you didn't explain the extent of your pain? Yeah, I, don't, I would probably – downplay it because the other part of it is you don't really want it to be real um and you don't want to listen to to what your body's telling you because your body's telling you you have to stop you're like well that's not an option olympics yeah olympics is right there that's that's not an option i'm just going to push that down and as well like a lot of sport is pushing through pain it's just learning the difference between what's damaging pain that's going to cause damage in the future and impact how you're going to be able to train, and what's pain that's okay. And for every one of my injuries, I've also got a bad back. It's it's different for each one, and you have to learn the tipping point of, like, how much is okay and how much is going to, like, create a snowball effect where it just keeps getting worse and starts impacting my training. It takes a while to to realize all of that. But for me, going into Rio, that was a state of um, just... Um, denial, basically. Just being like, if I just don't think about it, and I just push it down and I don't deal with it, it'll be fine. It's not like I wasn't doing exercises. I was, but I wasn't being very creative in that. I didn't go see any specialists. I didn't really want to investigate it. Whatever diagnosis was given to me on the day, I was like, great, let's just, we'll just stick with that. Like, I don't want to do anything else. I just want to know that this is what's wrong with me and then we can fix it. Whereas I've sort of accepted now, my body's just a bit messed up and some... <laughs> Do you think that made it worse? Because it's chronic pain that you deal with now. Yeah. Did that situation make it worse? And I can understand you're the double world champion. You're still quite young. Yeah. It's only 21. Olympics the next year. I can understand how that would warp your mindset on that. But did you do so much damage that, you know, this is still an injury you need to manage? Yeah, it's still an injury I manage now. Um, and... I don't think it's from that extra damage I did in 2016. I think it's it's from doing 19,000 swimming strokes since I was seven years old <laughs> every week. Um, so it's 
but I was so set on finding like what was wrong and mm. then solution like focused and um, that just set me on one track um, rather than just being able to just like relax into the uncertainty of like I may never know exactly what is wrong with this but there may be different things from all different paths that I can pull together that's going to be a way to manage it which is which is what I do now I've seen a lot of different people and then figured out from each of those people which bits are helpful for my injury, which we still don't have a concrete diet. It's very nice when it's like, oh, I've got a hamstring tear and like this hamstring tear takes six weeks to heal and this is the rehab program. But I've sort of had to make my own bespoke one and my beautiful team of physios and doctors and everyone have obviously... talk to now. Yes. (laughs) I, I talk to now and also give the feedback of when things aren't working. Um, when you're an athlete, you're very good at doing what you're told, um, but you're not very good at saying this is actually not working. You're not very good at questioning things, and that's something I didn't do early on. If I was if I was doing exercises and they actually made my shoulder sore and they made it hurt, I'd just be like, oh well, the plan is to have exercises. I'm doing the exercises, so I'm not going to question it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> young too, twenty one too. You don't think you're young when you're 21, do you? <laughs> no. <laughs> How bad did that pain get? I've heard you describe it before and it made my jaw drop to the ground about not even being able to socialise with friends because you couldn't sit up Yeah, that, that was that was in, in um, like the end of 2017. It was probably at its, at its worst then. And that was when my back was sore as well. So I couldn't go out for dinner because I couldn't just like sit in a chair for that long. Like sitting down for an hour was too hard. Couldn't really, I'd studying uni at the time, like studying became very difficult because being on a computer was very difficult. Even things like, I was like, okay, what's something I can do that's going to be very low impact on my body that's going to be a hobby? I was like, great, I'll learn guitar, but it's my left shoulder. So oh, um, wow. yeah, yeah. having my hand like up on the frets yeah. and having to like look at the chords that I was trying to make, that, um, <laughs> that caused too much pain in my neck. Wow. I was like, I can't believe I can't even learn to play guitar like so low impact and that's the that's the long-term impact of injury that's been the hardest to manage it's not in the pool being in pain for two hours a day like that's or two hours a session that's okay I could manage that if I could just turn it off when I left the pool that would be brilliant but you can't it starts impacting every single aspect of your life yeah and it's exhausting yeah um and in 20 at the end of 2017 Commonwealth Games is going to be in April and I just could not see a way that I could keep doing this for another three years till we got to the Olympics um, and I almost didn't do Com Games at all. I was like, I don't, I don't see how I can swim at my best when I'm like this and I don't see how I can keep going. And so I decided as soon as Com Games was finished, I was going to have at least three months off, which was the longest I'd had since I was seven years old and that helped alleviate the pain actually it actually took away a lot of it because it was the stress of like not only I'm stressed about the pain right now I'm stressed about the pain for three years like your mind just goes to this is how it's going to be for three years and giving my body the option of having a break just the thought of that um, how much of pain is in your mind as well um, and how much attention you pay to it is um is very interesting it took it took away a lot of the pain and I had my my best ever performance at Commonwealth Games. Still, you won. Gold medal. I did, I 100 meter freestyle. I did. And I did. And I did my personal best time, which was faster than I'd won the world championships three years before. And I've been thinking that with, with injury, your dodgy you, shoulder. You wow. can't get back to your best yeah. when you're broken, right? 
But um, it's um, it's been half of my career that I've been injured for, and I'm pretty proud that I've found a way to keep going. You wouldn't, I wouldn't think that you can keep going with injury, and that you can perform at your best with injury. Um, but it's been very interesting learning how you can. I've learned so much more from being injured than if I just sailed through with no injury. Um, finding a way to succeed without everything being ideal has been a really good learning thing for me. And I think I'll take that into the whole rest of my life. Yeah. It's, um, I'm You've learned how to be smart I'm about weirdly it. weirdly grateful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, that word perspective also <laughs> comes up. Um, can I just go back to 2016, given that you're on the blocks going, I haven't done the work, my shoulder, you know, you knew, felt like your body was falling apart. That was when you stopped on the blocks. When you put your hand on the wall and looked up and saw that you were, what, half a second off third or less? Half of a tenth of a second. Yeah. <laughs> five one hundredths of a second. Yeah, five one hundredths, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, off third. Like it's an incredible, incredible effort. You say growing up, every race that you were in with Kate, you touched the wall, you looked up, see where you are, see where Kate was. In that immediate point when you touched the wall and you looked up and you saw you came forth, which is amazing given and how close you were, incredible result given what you went through. But then when you looked up and saw Kate, who was the world champ, who was the favourite, who had smashed the Olympic record in the heats and then again in the semis, broken the world record two months beforehand. And then you saw that, your best friend, your sibling. I get emotional thinking about it because um, I think you two are amazing. And it was such a heartbreaking moment because, was it fifth overall, six? Six. That she came in that moment when you touched the wall, what was going through your head, Bronte or Kate? Oh, there's no way I was thinking about my position in that race at all. I didn't even know how close I was to coming thirds because I was just looking for Kate's name in that race. Really? Like, <laughs> of course. Like, she'd come into that, the um, the um, world record holder. She'd broken mm. the world record and she was the world champion from 2013. And she had so much pressure on her and... Um, I just, I was just so wanted her to get that, that gold medal and that that win, which um, I knew that she deserved because I'd seen her do all the training for it, mm. and wanted her so badly to have that moment. And um, she had a <laughs> terrible first twelve seconds of her race. Like if you really get into it, it's it's it was overrating, which means like moving your arms a bit too fast in the first twelve seconds of your race. And that's what kills you in the last fifteen mm. meters of your race, and that's, that was that mm. was it. It's a it's a it's a small mistake, mm. but it can my heart just like breaks for her every time I think about it. I just got out, gave her a big cuddle, and then you've got to go straight to a to a media interview, mm. and you've got to hold it together for that. And then the next day is the fifty freestyle, and um, then there's another relay as well. So you've literally do not have time to process it. But um, yeah, I definitely felt way more for, for Kate than for myself in any of that. And she was um she was very broken by it. It was it was a lot of weight because she takes on 
everyone else's expectations way more than I do. Like I just love racing. I want to just be there and race. Even though I was stepping behind the blocks and I was like, I probably haven't done the work to be here. I was just like, I'm an Olympic final. Like this is great. Like I'm just going to go race. Seven-year-old. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I I always actually consciously bring seven-year-old Bronzy along with me every time. I'm like, just remember that when you're seven, like it doesn't matter that it feels like, yeah, you're going to spew right now. This is exactly what you wanted. Like you wanted this. You've chosen this. This is your dream. Just like... I know it's difficult, but just enjoy it. Um, and Kate's like, everyone's relying on me. I hope I don't let everyone down. Um, this race is not about me. It's about trying to make everyone else happy. No. Yeah. Which is um, just sort of the person that she is probably a lot less selfish than I am. But um, it was it was definitely difficult watching Kate go through that and then through um, the aftermath of that, which was trying to piece everything back together and get the confidence to come back into the pool and go again. I kept thinking that night, what's happening over there in Rio with Kate and Bronte? <laughs> that first night, I kept thinking, I wonder what's happening over there. What was that first night after that race? You know, the things that we didn't see when you guys left the pool deck. We left the, we leave the pool deck, you go out the back, and you got to swim down and the rest of the team is up in the stands watching um, and they're supposed to stay there Um we sort of, it's not really a rule, but you stay there from when the first swimmer, Australian swimmer gets in to when the last person gets their medal. Mm-hmm. Um, but the whole, it must have been about the whole team. The whole team came down after that 100 freestyle. They were supposed to stay. But every single person came down to see Kate after her race while she was warming down. And then... um like six of the six of the people who were finished, um, they waited for us and then they came back to the village with us and we all sat in the dining hall and we ate <laughs> at like 2 a.m. in the morning because the finals were so late. Mm. Um, so they're all sitting there at 2 a.m. and they're just like just spending time with us and trying to, um, I think what they're, they're trying to support, but they're also trying to show you that you're not, your your performance is only one part of it. Like you're not yeah. you're not worthless to this team. Like we mm. still we still want you part of this, even though that wasn't the race that you wanted. Um, and those were like very very good moments. Then mm. Kate and myself went back to our rooms. Um, we had the heat of the fifty freestyle the next morning. Um, so then it was like I just tried to give Kate a big hug, and she was crying and she was so upset. I was like, you just like we just got to go to bed. Mm. Like, we just have to go to sleep. It's 3 a.m. We've mm. got to get up in four hours and we've got to go again. So yeah. um, just gave her a big hug and we both went back to our rooms and I'm pretty sure we didn't sleep. <laughs> <laughs> we, we weren't actually sharing a room that time. We had our own rooms that, that year. So we just went back to our rooms and I'm pretty sure neither of us slept and then up again the next morning and you got to walk back into the dining hall and walk back onto pool deck and um, look like you're completely fine with Put it. Put on a brave face. Yeah. It's yeah. um, is it's a very weird, very fast transition from like okay that happens, and I can't even I can't even begin to deal with it. I've just got to move straight on to the next thing. Yeah. But um, that team like it just it was such a special moment, and it um, for me made me realize like how important small things are for people. Like I don't think any of those guys even really thought about it. Like of course they just did it. Um. But, like, for me on the team, as a, as a leader on the team, small things, like, really matter. Just putting your 
hand on someone's shoulder when they're sitting by mm. themselves. Just just noticing someone and seeing someone makes can make such a huge difference. Um, so in reflecting on it, that's that's the big lesson I got from it was um, how impactful little acts of kindness can be. That's what makes you two so special because you know that. <laughs> yeah, well, we got lucky enough to be shown it. Um, I think there's a, there's just so many great people in the sport of swimming. Um, you, there's a team of 40-ish that go away and the people that are on that team, I mean, possibly the public could name five of them, maybe. Um, but you forget that there's, there's 35 other swimmers on that team who are just amazing people. Um, and so I feel so lucky to be part of that community for so mm. long. I can't believe that was four years after what we're talking about happened in, in 2012 and when that nature of the team was really kind of, you know, pulled through the mud and, and questioned. And then four years later, something so beautiful is that support is shown. Yeah. Um, fun fact about Bronte too, <laughs> you're a poet <laughs> and you talk about small things that, that matter, but, you know, every Olympics you write, a poem for the for the Dolphins team and then you read it out to the team. How did that start and um, where did writing start for you? I just always loved writing. So I always used to write and I'd always write like silly little poems for my friends for their birthdays and things <laughs> like that. And then, yeah, it's every, every single team we go on, like World Champs, Com Games, anything, um, always write something for the team. That started in 2013. So it's actually only my second mm-hmm. year on the team. And I'd written something like while we were at the competition, um, which was Barcelona World Champs. And I'd shown it to Kate because I was writing it while we were in the room. And she's like, this is great. Like, mm. you have to read this. And I was like, absolutely no way am I getting up like in front of all my peers <laughs> and reading them a poem. Like, this is um, not going to happen. But she took it to the team manager and they were like, this is like, we think we want to add this in. So that's sort of where it started. And it's honestly so nerve-wracking every single time. Um, <laughs> Expectation, I imagine, would grow every single time. Yeah. Too. <laughs> well, it's nice because some of the, the younger ones on the team, the, the rookies on the team haven't seen it before and they're not even aware that it's going to happen. Um, and yeah, I just always write something that's just about the moment that we're in and what we're about to go do and always read it out the last... Um, the last meeting we have before we go into competition. And they seem to really like it. I love them. <laughs> I've, I haven't read all of them, but um, Kate actually back in 2015 shared one. Um, well, she told me about it. She was like, oh, Bronte's a poet. She does this. I was like, what? And then you were gracious enough to share yours with me, um, which I published on Sportet at the time because I thought it was beautiful and I like, Far out, how does she write like this? Like, <laughs> this is amazing. So um, I think that's that's a very beautiful fun fact and probably helps, no doubt, has been a contributing factor to building that that team and that team culture, which, you know, you're a leader in. Com Games Gold, going back to that, would have been super special because obviously in your home track, really, like Gold Coast, Brisbane, same, Um <clears throat> Apologies to both Gold Coast and Brisbane people for just saying that. But, you know, your family and friends there, it is like your homecom games would have been super special. But did you have a better appreciation of this um, 
and were able to enjoy this win this time as opposed to, say, the double world champs in, in 2015. Yeah. Yeah, so much more. I mean, it helped that I then had three months off to sort of let it sink in. But um, you never, you're sort of, when you're swimming, your your career is sort of climbing this mountain and it always felt like I started in 2012, hadn't won a medal. And then like in 2013, I got on the relay team and we won a medal. And then 2014, we broke a world record. And then you're slowly sort of climbing up and you, you don't actually know where the peak is until you're on the other side. You don't appreciate the peak until you're on the other side. So in 2015, I was like, well, I'm like halfway up the hill. I've just got to like keep on going um, rather than stopping and just like turning around and looking at the view, which is what I did in in 2018. And that, that's, that swim meant so much to me because of where I'd come to from my injuries, but it also, um, it also gave me the chance to appreciate my whole career as well up to that point. And it was, yeah, it was, it was brilliant. Like to, to win was one thing, but to, to swim that, that time that I didn't think I could get that fast again, which by the way, like that, that time still would have come second at, at these Olympics. So wow. it was, um, wow. it, it was a, it was a very good time for me and it was a world-class time and it still still is a world-class time. So to be able to get back there, um, I, I still appreciate it. I'm still very proud of it. Yeah, you should be. <laughs> um, did it spark your desire for 2020 in the Olympics? And then obviously like something in you, in you clicked and thought, I can, I can keep going, I can do this. What else was fueling your 2020 Olympic campaign? I think by the time I'd finished Com Games and I'd had three months off, um, by that time I'd sort of started looking outside the sport for a bunch of other things. Um, I'd picked up way better hobbies. I'd like found a really good network of friends and I had all this joy in my life anyway. And then swimming could come from a little bit of extra on top of that mm-hmm. from like a great foundation and then on top of that. And you always want the Olympics. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was always working towards that, but operating from a place of like this, everything I get from now on is a bonus. Mm-hmm. Like I was so happy with how I'd performed and I was so happy with where my life was that mm-hmm. I could just like very freely compete and very freely, com- um, very freely train. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it was just it was just coming at it from a place of a lot more joy as well as around that time we started doing a lot more leadership development within the team. Um, I was on the leadership group, but we really started developing that group and I found that incredibly rewarding in a way that I hadn't expected. It actually took away from the pressure of competing because I'd found a way to contribute to the team without performance. Mm-hmm. Previously, I'd always thought, like, if I perform well, I'm contributing to sure. the team. And yeah. here I was like, being like, okay, great. I've, we've put all these great systems in place. I feel mm. like I'm contributing anyway. Everything's now a bonus. Mm. Looking at performances as a bonus was helpful for me because mm. I put a lot of pressure on myself. So I was just training and competing from a really happy place, mm. which um, which makes a difference. And it's, it's what's kept me in the sport for so long. I've, I've been on the team for 10 years now and Molly, um, Molly O'Callaghan, who's 17, was in, um, in Tokyo. Um, yeah, she's, she's where I started, mm. but it's, um, 
it's amazing to me that she she would have been like seven when I made my first Yeah, date. right. Yeah. <laughs> That's just insane to me. I don't feel that old, but they just make me feel so old. I love swimming, where anything <laughs> close to 30 is considered old as well. Like, it so is. it's the nature of it. Um, when did that then help soften the blow when COVID kind of forced a, um, a postponement of that? And I know it was heartbreaking at the time, but I think you've spoken before about you got everyone together and watch Big Fat Greek Wedding yeah. or something. To tell <laughs> it. Is that right? Got my whole squad together. We had a few drinks. We we're just like, this is it. We just, um, there was a lot of tears that night. Not actually from me. I was, I was actually in a really bad place injury-wise at that point. And I was like, well, I could very quickly in my mind flip it to like, well, we can, have, more time. We can have an opportunity here. Wow. Um, Great. Which was good for me. Um, and the same thing with having people around you who understand what you're going through, as well as then that extended network of people that aren't in the sport. That's so important to me because they only care about whether you're upset or not. And they don't really know or care about swimming that much. <laughs> like they just don't understand it. And that's good. It's a good thing to have people that only care about like their biggest concern is, are you happy that night? Not like, yeah, oh, when so are you going to be able to get back into training and like all these other yeah. anxieties that you have yeah. yourself. Yeah. And it was a good, it was a good opportunity for me. And I was able to take um, the longest amount of time to get back in the pool. Like you normally have a meet every August and then you've got trials um, sort of in May the next year. So you're sort of rushing to get in shape for all of these um, different meets. Trials actually used to be in April. But now I had 18 months until trials rather than four. So like now I had this little gift of time. I wasn't, like, I didn't want it, but I now had it. And I had the time to rebuild properly and slowly. And like when, in, when injury was sore to actually just take a step back, I wasn't in a rush anymore. And that made my preparation into Tokyo a lot less painful and it was um it's it's the reason probably I think I think it is the reason that post Tokyo I haven't just said okay great I'm done I'm retiring which is probably where I would have been if it had gone ahead in 2020 right um because I was in a lot of pain then so I would have had to push through that last four months just to get there but now I can see a way that I can manage it going forwards and know that that pain level can come down so it Gives you a little bit of a push that maybe like, maybe Paris isn't that far away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I love the fact that I think it shows the type of leader that you are that, you know, when that devastating news, which you knew would be devastating for your team, you got members of the swim team over to your house and watched Big Fat Greek. I don't know where Big Fat Greek wedding is. <laughs> it's not even I don't know a new where film that came, what from. that came from, but the wine as well. I think it, um, yeah, shows you that you know, that kind of person that that you are. And we've talked about you being a leader on that on that team and your great perspective, but you have so much respect from your peers um, in your team. And as part of every podcast, we ask someone close to you to record a message. Um, and it would have been really easy to go to Kate for that one, but I wanted a different perspective. Um, and someone I know, you, you two are like two peas in a pod, really, um, I think. And when she came on the show, on, on her game, I'm like, oh, just your idiosyncrasies, the way you talk. I don't know, there's something about you. It's very Bronte Campbell-like. 
She's your training partner as well. She's, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it is, of course, a Paralympic star, an absolute legend, Ellie Cole, and she recorded this message for you. Hey, Bronce, it's Ellie Cole, but you can probably tell from my voice. Now, I don't think it's a surprise to know that you are very much loved by me. Everybody knows it. And I say it all the time. And I wish that I met you earlier. But one of my favorite things about you is your unique skill in turning what would be a terrible day into ultimately a really great day. And when I think about how great you are in this space, my mind always goes back to that photo of you and I in 2020 and what was to be doomsday for any athlete, which was the postponement of the Tokyo 2020 Games due to COVID. For the athletes, it was uncharted territory. We were all really uncertain about our future. We were all very scared. And the realization that our swimming careers could potentially end on that day was so real. But there is a photo of us at the end of that day, doomsday. And although it was very, very difficult news to stomach because the world was hurting and the athletes were, in this photo, you and I look so happy. We're laughing. We're having a great time together. And that's how good you are and why I love you so much because you turn my bad days into good ones every single time. So keep doing that to everyone you love and we'll hopefully turn your bad days into good ones too. You're a good friend. I don't need to tell you that. And I love you very much. Oh, <laughs> That was so nice. So super sweet. I love hey. you too, Ellie. Yeah. So much. <laughs> For the record, I do too. She's she's the best. She's cool. Hey? She is like and what I didn't touch on is that training with Ellie for that those two years from twenty nineteen until twenty twenty one were just amazing. Like she brought so much joy to my training environment every single day. Like she thinks I make her life better. Like I used to just look forward to coming to training to see her. And now that we don't train together, that's something I really miss. It's just the opportunity just to, like, be around her every day. She's the best. That photo <laughs> she's talking about is so silly. Like, we're just dying. I don't even know why. We're probably, like, just, I don't know what we're laughing at. But um, uh, Kate took a photo of us because Kate's in the corner, like, crying. She's so upset. And we were just <laughs> laughing and laughing. She's just, she thinks it's me. It's not. It's her. She's the joyish one, for sure. <laughs> You're both pretty cool. Oh, Tokyo, was it special then considering your career didn't have to end on doomsday like Ellie said? Um, you did get that silver lining of more time. You were there on the team. Um, and then, you know, the performances you girls put in were just amazing. Um, so uplifting. Really, really special because we're all in lockdown as well. <laughs> Miserable. <laughs> but, you know, it did bring so much joy um, to all of us at home. I can't imagine what it was like for you with that four by 100 meter relay as well. Because it's always been, we've got such a great history in that sport for the women's four by 100 meter relay. Um, 2012? Or was it Beijing? Beijing, they came third. And then won 2012. 2012, 2016. And then Tokyo, 2020, 2021, um, you know, three times in a row. But for a long time over the Commonwealth Games and the World Champs, like it was, you guys have been a, a big part of that in that that was the steady, wasn't it? Emma McKeon, Kate Campbell, Bronte Campbell. There was always another one that came in and out 
of that side for various reasons. Um, those games, how special, given the games that you had in 2016, given where your body was at, given we just had the pandemic, how special was that to see both yours and Kate's successes over there? Oh, it was, it was the best. It was, <laughs> the Tokyo games are just so good. Just um, like personally, I, I only qualified for the relay this time, not for individual spots on the team, um, which was a different position to be in because I'd always had individual races. But I now knew I could contribute to the team in way different ways. So um, I've finished before the last night of competition. Normally I race all the way till the end. Mm. Um, but now I could be in the stands every single session. I yeah. could make sure I was um, seeing the athletes before and after their races. Um, fun fact, Kaylee McEwen, who won the 200 backstroke later in the week after winning the 100 earlier, she forgot her shoes. So I like <laughs> like about... A minute before she walks out behind the blocks, I was like running around underneath the stadium trying to find her shoes and then I ended up giving her my shoes, um, which I felt like proud that my shoes got to be on top of the podium yeah. with her. Um, but that was great, just being part of the team in that way and just seeing like everyone who put in so much hard work and um, being able to watch them just achieve mm. their dreams. Mm. So many of them got that. I mean, yeah. Arnie got to do it. Um, Zach Stubbledy Cook got to do it. Jack McLaughlin, um, who came second in the 400 on the first night, like one of the first races. Um, even um, Brendan, who won a, a bronze medal in the in the 400 IM, who had just qualified for his first team, and suddenly he's like on the Olympic podium. It was just it was a magic team to be a part of. Um, and then the four by one has always been a little special mm. team that we we've I've just been honored to be part of that for so so many years now. Yeah. I don't want to put a damper on the swim team at all, but it would be remiss of me to talk about the recent review into swimming. Um you know, and talking about some of the problems that were there and it was really eye-opening to read the recommendations and what that report the findings of of that report. Um and even Kate has talked about, you know, that pressure on weight and on her body composition as a swimmer, not from Simon Cusack, your coach, but, you know, winning that bigger network um, and Australian swim team. Um, from you being a leader on that team, what was your reaction to that report and some of the findings and some of the results and what people were saying? Yeah, it's something um, you want to really own all of that and then find a way to move forward from it. Um, our particular team and the environment that we had on the on the Tokyo team, I found was amazing and very, very good. But then you also don't know what's going on in each squad environment and what's going on more broadly in the sport as a whole. And then like out again, like how society views a lot of things and all of those things influence each other. So the, the independent panel, um, the findings from that are great because they're applicable. Like we can start changing things and doing things that are actually going to make a difference. I think how people view women's bodies in general is from a societal level needs to change, but we're on a, on a microscopic level in the area of high performance. And um, a lot of the things are things that sort of bubble under the surface. And it's not until someone asks a question that you really even start to think about it. So in terms of like the actual team environment, it was fantastic, but the ability to be able to look more broadly outside of that and into the sport as a whole and start fixing some of those things. It's um, 
it's great that we're in that position. It's great that we're in a position where you can start addressing issues that have just sort of been below the surface. Mm-hmm. And now they're not below the surface. And there's a plan to implement change and make things better. These aren't things that even would have been considered five years ago. I mean, if someone had said five years ago, okay, we're not going to talk about physique. We're only going to talk about, um, we're only going to talk about uh, power in the water, which is one of the recommendations from the review. We'd have just been laughed out of the laughed out of the room. No one would have paid any attention to it. Were you shocked at some of the findings and some of the? No, I wasn't. I wasn't shocked at any of the findings. I think I haven't. I haven't seen the actual um, report. I think there's only about six people that have seen it because it's fairly easy from some stories that are in it to identify who those people are. Mm. So, did you know about some of those stories? I don't know because I haven't seen them. Right. I wouldn't. I wouldn't have seen them, so I don't actually know what was in there. But um, I don't think I was. I was shocked by some of the the recommendations. I think. I was mainly, maybe I was just mainly in the headset of... We can fix it. We, like, this is now our roadmap out of here. And um, I don't want to diminish what anybody's been through. I don't, I don't know anybody else's experience. My experience has been fairly positive. Um, and I've been in a squad environment that's positive. And that's, um, that's the tricky thing as well, is when you're on, you're on team for sort of five weeks a year, but then you spend the whole rest of your time in a squad environment. And that's... That's a different thing as well. So I don't know what anyone else's experience in those environments are. I know that the on the team space is in a really, really good place. Now we can start looking, or now they've started looking, at what those other little environments look like. And there's obviously things in there that need to change. And I'm just um, glad that I'm going to be part of it in, in a small way because I run the um, Australian Swimmers Association and... Um, we need to grow and find a way to make things better as well. We're um, one of the recommendations in the review is that we get proper support so that we can start supporting athletes better from outside of Swimming Australia, which is what I'm really passionate about. Is that athlete wellbeing space? So good um, and great. They're like what Maddie Groves, Emily Seabom have come out and been so brave in coming out, and great that that's been now being addressed as well, not just being forgotten. You don't, you don't want people to have to go through something painful in in order for change to take place. But I think the positive thing is that girls are getting listened to. Mm. Women are getting listened to now when they come out with things, mm. which wasn't wasn't always what happened in the past. Well, we finish every podcast by asking, if you could go back to your little self, little Bronte, and give her a message. Normally we say 10, sometimes I say 14, but I think in this case I'm going to go back to little <laughs> seven-year-old Bronte. <laughs> What would be that message that you could tell her? I'd probably just tell her to relax a little bit. Like, <laughs> um, just just enjoy enjoy the wins, enjoy the rides, and um, you don't have to be so intense about it. <laughs> the perspective that I've got now, I wish I could give that to myself at 7, 14, 21. I think it would be, um, it'd be very useful for that little bronzy. Mm. <laughs> Unfortunate to get that perspective. You have to experience it. I know. Don't you? <laughs> what a journey it's been, Bronte. Um, I've followed all of it. I've enjoyed every ride. I feel like I've kind of felt every ride as well. Um, I just think you're amazing. I think um, Kate's amazing as well. And I'm really, I'll always be grateful for the way I think when we first met, you made me feel so welcome and 
um, you were always so friendly and lovely and you're just a great person. So um, ahead of being a great swimmer. But yeah, but thank you so much for joining me here on Her Game and sharing your story. Thank you, Sam. Thanks so much for having me. On Her Game was presented by me, Sam Squires, producer Lindsay Green, audio producer Nikki Sitch, executive producer Jennifer Goggin. 